this court is kicking into high gear. So we've seen it three times before, 1937, 1954, 1963, three earthquakes, each of which actually resulted in really huge shifts in a Supreme Court case law overruling or moving way past earlier cases. And we're seeing it again now, although this time there are things going on below the surface that non-experts aren't seeing, but experts, at least some of us candidly, have been seeing. And, and we're predicting this. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Since the draft of the Dobbs decision overruling Roe leaked back in May, there have been a ton of questions about how the court could have reached the opinion it did and what it could mean for other landmark Supreme Court decisions. I'm joined today by Akhil Ridamar. Akhil is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, where he teaches constitutional law at both Yale College and Yale Law School. He's also a graduate of Yale Law School and has received awards from the American Bar Association and the Federalist Society. Akhil has been cited by Supreme Court justices in over 45 cases, including the Dobbs decision, more than any other scholar under 65. He appears frequently as a legal commentator on cable news shows and has been published in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Time Magazine. He is also the author of The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Professor, thank you for making the time to have this conversation, and welcome to Politicology. It's an honor to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. So the leak of Alito's draft opinion created what has felt like a tectonic event um, in American political life, overturning a precedent that has been in place for 50 years. So it is completely understandable to me that the political backlash has been so fast and so furious. And you identify as a liberal, you describe yourself as pro-choice, and yet you agree with Alito that Roe was in fact wrongly decided. And I've wanted to talk to you about that since the leak happened, because it's the kind of nuanced position that rarely finds its way into mainstream coverage, especially around controversial topics. And in any case, I thought it would be best to wait until we had a final decision, uh, complete with dissents and concurrences, uh, to dive into what just happened and why and where we go from here. So why don't we start with the Dobbs decision itself? to abortion, we can tell you right now that in a six to three decision written by Justice Samuel Alito, the court has ruled that states can decide whether abortion should be legal or illegal. That means, according to this um, decision, according to Justice Alito, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe versus Wade and Casey have been overruled. Can you lay out Justice Alito's argument in the majority opinion? You use just the right word, tectonic, and uh, interestingly, it's the same word that appears in the opening paragraph of a piece that I've recently uploaded on the Time Magazine's online website. Um, and I think it's the right word because um, what we are going through is a kind of earthquake. Um, and it is a result of deep jurisprudential forces, um, uh, theories of constitutional interpretation uh, that are at work, um, candidly forces that I uh, predicted and that I advocate. 
Um, and the most important um, of these uh, jurisprudential forces is an idea um, that people have heard about, but I'm not sure they fully understand, which is called originalism. Originalism focuses on the text and original understanding of various constitutional provisions, and of course that includes the amendments, not just the original constitution, and it privileges the correct understanding of the text and history of the constitution over precedent, even if um, um, even seemingly settled precedent, long-standing precedent, a, a half a century precedent, if the precedent is now viewed as egregiously erroneous from the point of view of uh, constitutional text and history, from the point of view of originalism. Now, here's the final point, and then we can get into details on Dobbs. Originalism is not a uniquely conservative idea. And indeed, the most important originalist um, of the last century on the court, um, on any court, um, was not a conservative, not Robert Bork, not Antonin Scalia, not Clarence Thomas, not Samuel Alito, the author of the Dobbs Draft, and another important originalist opinion in a case called City of Chicago versus McDonald involving guns, a, a, a case that um, also was particularly prominent um, in the last uh, few days because there was a gun case alongside the abortion case. So the most important originalist, to repeat, um, of the last century on any court was not a conservative, but was in fact Franklin Roosevelt's first appointee to uh, the court, Hugo Black. Um, Black was a preeminent liberal. He was the driving intellectual force behind the Warren court. I am in the Hugo Black tradition. I'm an originalist and I'm a liberal. Um, I would say Abraham Lincoln before us was was a, a liberal originalist of, of a certain sort, not on a court, but um, we're in a grand tradition. And um, uh, and this earthquake that we ex uh, have experienced, and, and the aftershocks are, are not over, there are going to be reverberations to, uh, to follow your, your tectonic metaphor, um, um, has precursors on at least three occasions earlier um, in the 20th century, there was a massive shift of case law. In 1937, when the uh, uh, a court shifted away from um, a set of ideas called Lochner, um, when the uh, which privileged um, a private property and freedom of contract, and eventually under uh, um, with new blood on the court because of Franklin Roosevelt, 1937, the, the new blood repudiates the old case law in 37, and Hugo Black is right at the heart of that. He's put on the court in 37. Then again in 1954, this court led, I believe, intellectually by Hugo Black, not by Earl Warren, who was a great man, but not the intellectual leader, not by William Brennan, who's not even on the court yet, but led by Hugo Black, repudiates half a century of precedent called Plessy versus Ferguson. The Supreme Court decision in Plessy versus Ferguson maintained that segregation was legal so long as the railroad provided separate but equal accommodations for passengers. State legislatures responded quickly with laws reauthorizing segregation. That's 1954 Brown versus Board of Education. 
Warren starts off in a bland manner, and you can't tell for a while as he's delivering the opinion what the outcome is going to be. And then he comes to the key line and he says, and we unanimously hold that separate but equal has no place in the Constitution. And it was just electric in the courtroom when he said unanimous. And then in 1963, when the Warren Court kicks into high gear, when a former um, Ivy League professor and, and, and jurist leaves the court, uh, Felix Frankfurter, you know, the uh, Warren Court kicks into high gear and, over, and, and modifies all sorts of other precedents, again, led by Hugo Black. And now we're seeing, you see, when uh, an Ivy League, pro former Ivy League professor um, leaves the court, RBG, um, the, this court is kicking into high gear. So we've seen it three times before, 1937, 1954, 1963, three earthquakes, each of which actually um, resulted in really huge um, shifts in a Supreme Court case law, overruling um, or, or moving way past um, earlier cases, 1937, um, the, with the New Deal and the old, co uh, uh, and the old court, 1954, Brown repudiating Plessy. Um, 1963, the Warren Court kicking into high gear. And we're seeing it again now, although this time it's in a conservative direction. We're seeing con a conservative flavor of originalism rather than a liberal flavor. Now, I haven't given you any of the details on Dobbs, and I know your audience is interested in all of that, but you used a word that I wanted to pick up on, Ron, because I think it's just the right word tectonic, and there are things going on below the surface that non-experts aren't seeing, but experts, um, at least some of us, candidly, have been seeing, and, and we're predicting this. It is so useful to have the, 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 the historical backdrop for this, because there is so much going on on the surface. Um, so why don't we talk now, with that as the backdrop, why don't we talk now about exactly what question was at stake in this case and how Alito approached it and what he argued from an originalist point of view? Just to get a running start into the thing, many of the memes that are out there are, in my view, not correct. Here's one that you've, you've heard over and over and over again. This is the first time that a right has been taken away from, uh, by the court. Um, first time ever. Um, and this meme is coming from many people whom I quite like and quite respect, but I just told you it's not true. Because in the 1930s, for 50 years, there was a strong, judicially protected kind of right of contract and property, um, an era that lawyers called the Lochner era, symbolized by the Lochner case, and the court tossed that all overboard in the 1930s. So um, Roe has now become the new Lochner. Lochner was about... Um, um, private, powerful men's private property. Um, a row is about less powerful women's um, um, private lives, uh, their private parts, if you will. Brown added to rights, um, and uh, the Warren Court in 1963 added to rights. But Lochner, uh, Lochner's repudiation in the 1930s, the 1937 revolution, in effect, took away um, a judicially, previously judicially recognized right, property and contract rights. Um, and now we're seeing it with um, abortion. And 
the logic of Dobbs is very much the logic of 1937 and self-consciously. Um, eight times, I believe, in all the Dobbs opinions, uh, the word Lochner appears. And what, they, what the Dobbs court is saying is um, the abortion right was just as erroneous and made up, even if entrenched in case law, um, as were property rights in, in, in this uh, era from 1880s to mid-1930s, the, the Dobbs court says it's not really in the Constitution, just as um, a full-throated right of uh, employers, this is Lochner, to um, um, drive hard bargains with their employees, to have um, uh, sweatshop workshop uh, conditions with um, sub-minimum wages and, 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 and long, long, long hours. Lochner basically protected an employer's right to drive a hard bargain. And um, in the 1930s, the Supreme Court said, that's actually not in the Constitution. Um, and they invalidated, uh, Lochner was based on a thing called substantive due process, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more in a minute. That's what Roe was actually based on a doctrine called substantive due process. And the 1930s New Deal revolution tossed that overboard when it came to, in effect, property. And now what um, uh, the Dobbs draft does is kind of throw Roe overboard. Roe was based more on liberty. um, But in both situations, the court's saying, actually, read the text. The text doesn't protect property as such. The text doesn't protect liberty as such. Here's what it says. Um, No state can deny any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And due process of law means basically fair procedures, impartial judges and juries, um, uh, lawyers, proof beyond reasonable doubt in criminal cases, um, fair trials. But with a fair trial, um, Someone's life can be actually jeopardized, um, capital punishment. Someone's liberty can be modified. Lots of laws um, abridge liberty. The liberty to drive 80 miles an hour, the liberty to swing your fist wherever and whenever and at, at whom you want. We, those liberties um, can be restricted in various ways, um, as can property be restricted in various ways, with proper legal procedures, due process of law. So the first thing that the um, uh, New Deal revolution, in effect, said, and that um, uh, Alito's draft is kind of repeating, is we should be very hesitant to read the due process clause to go beyond that, to uh, read it as uh, a license to judges to invalidate laws, even lawful laws restrict liberty or property, um, simply because judges don't like the reasons that the legislature has chosen. What lawyers call substantive due process should be um, um, seen uh, very skeptically. That's what the um, New Deal court said about property and contract rights that weren't actually textually enumerated, and that's what um, Dobbs said. Now, here are the originalist moves in Dobbs. It says, at the time of the 14th Amendment, most states had um, laws prohibiting abortion in a wide range of situations, and no one thought those laws were unconstitutional. So that's originalism. Um, you look at the time that a constitution's provision was adopted, what did it mean? No one seemed to say that it meant that abortion laws were um, unconstitutional. And the text doesn't quite say that, at least the due process clause. It says liberty 
and property for that matter, can be abridged with fair legal procedures. Now, that's not the end of the inquiry. Um, and many people, another meme out there is that um, Alito just locked in um, the world circa 1868, a world in which, for example, women didn't vote at all anywhere. So that's that's the meme that's out there. It's or that now we're in Gilead. <laughs> yeah, but it's not really quite, I think, a fair account of Dobbs. And if we read Dobbs that way, now that it's on the books, I think this is a mistake because we're actually reading it to be worse than it, um, it needs to be rather than uh, do some damage control and, and try to save lots of other things um, from, from um, this earthquake that we're experiencing. Because I'd like to save as many buildings as possible. Thank you. Yeah. Um, um, okay. Yeah. Um, now, here's what the Dobbs draft says in effect about unenumerated rights. So let's, imagine, oh, let's say, okay, we agree, at least for argument's sake, that due process is basically about fair procedures. But the Constitution does talk about unenumerated rights. Um, the Ninth Amendment very famously says not all the rights are, are enumerated, that is textualized. And the framers of the 14th Amendment actually did, if we're doing originalism, believe in rights that weren't listed. Um, they didn't try to list all the rights. I th- would say the text where they really said this most emphatically is a companion text to the Due Process Clause, and I'll read it, um, or I'll just paraphrase it. No state, which includes, of course, cities and localities or counties, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities or immunities of citizens of the United States. In other words, no state shall abridge fundamental rights of Americans, okay, whether they're procedural or not, even if they're substantive. And they're not all itemized. It's fine. Where do we find them? Ah, well, we find them if they're mentioned elsewhere in the Constitution, from now on, states can't mess with them. Even if they were originally mentioned as rights may be against the federal government. The original First Amendment says Congress shall make no law um, abridging freedom of speech or the press or free exercise um, um, a petition, assembly, and so on. Okay, but the, in fact, the original set of amendments, what we call the Bill of Rights, limited only the federal government, but it identified fundamental rights. And now, after the Civil War, when, when states had misbehaved before the Civil War, we want to make sure that no state messes with those fundamental rights. Speech, press, petition, assembly, free exercise. Note how the sentence I just read you riffs on the first sentence of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law which shall abridge freedom of speech and the press. Now, no state, um, excuse me, no law make shall abridge. It's the same language, but now it's states can't do this. Okay, originally federal government, Congress can't mess with. Congress shall make no law which shall abridge freedom of speech and the press. Now, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge. So no shall make law abridge. So that's what lawyers call incorporation. The rights that were originally itemized against the federal government are now applied or incorporated against the state. Speech, pass, petition, assembly, free exercise. The Bruin case says guns, um, Second Amendment. No uh, uh, right against unreasonable searches and seizures in the Fourth Amendment. So um, um, a jury trial, um, no double jeopardy, public trial. All these original rights that were mentioned in the Constitution against the federal government now apply against the states. Oh, but wait, there's more. Um, other fundamental rights apply as well, even if they're not mentioned. And now the question is, how do we find them? Dobbs says, look to American 
practices, customs, look at um, state constitutions, look at the pattern of state laws. And if uh, um, almost, and if there's a wide, and it cites a case called Glucksburg, um, which is a modern case. And the basic technique is state counting. Let's count up how many states, um, if there's a claim of right, I have a right to do X. Um, well, let's say, well, let's look at America. Let's see actually if Americans actually think that you have such a right. The best way to do that is not with a poll, which can be very unreliable and not capture regional variation and intensity and all the rest. Let's look at actual practice in America. Is it true that most Americans actually have this right as a matter of, of, of actual consensus practice? Um, so I'll give you an easy case on each side. Here's an easy case for, for an unenumerated right, which I do believe survives Dobbs, the right of contraception. Now, there's a famous case from 1965 called Griswold versus Connecticut that says um, you have a right to use contraception in your home. That case was involved, involved married couples. Um, but um, Griswold says you have that right. That that case actually originated in New Haven, Connecticut, um, my backyard, so to speak. Um, an earlier case literally involved the father of my next door neighbor, um, Andy Ullman. Uh, so it's a case called Poe versus Ullman. So so th- this is this is you know um, real for me and, and and very personal. And the court said, of course you have a right to use contraception in your home. Here's why that was an easy case, because. Of all the states in America, Connecticut was the only one that ever actually tried to restrict the use of contraception in the home, even by married couples. No other state did that. And um, and John Marshall Harlan the Younger, grandson of the first Justice Harlan, who dissented in, Dred, in, in Plessy versus Ferguson, emphasized that point in, in Poe versus Ullman, which is a companion case to um, Griswold. He said... Here's what's decisive in my view. This law is un-American. It lies outside the American consensus tradition. It's a weird outlier law. Um, And Dobbs explicitly in footnote 47 actually says Griswold involved an outlier statute. And those, even if they're not enumerating the Constitution, there are unenumerated rights and we look to American consensus. Not even consensus circa 1868, but at the time the decision is made. Today, you know, now we look at, Griswold looked at laws in 1965 and said, this Connecticut law is weird. It's a total outlier. And um, in the Dobbs opinion, the final opinion, if you look at footnote, I believe 47, let me actually read it to you. Um, uh, So here's footnote 47. By way of contrast, At the time Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, was decided, the Connecticut statute at issue was an extreme outlier, see brief for Planned Parenthood Federation of America, you know, in, so it, 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 um, it, now, that's an easy case, and it's still an easy case today, and lots of unenumerated rights that people are freaked out about actually are strongly supported by, um, the, the basic American consensus say, yes, there might be some weird outlier state. Maybe it's Mississippi on this one or Missouri on that one or Oklahoma on something else or Arkansas on something else, but there's a broad consensus. Now let me give you, and, and here I'll end, an easy case the other way on this outlier analysis. The easy case the other way, alas, is Roe versus Wade. I personally, as you said, Ron, I'm pro-choice. 
but I'm trying to actually apply faithfully a certain methodology. The framers of the 14th Amendment did believe in unenumerated rights, They believe, and the best way to determine what the privileges and immunities of citizens actually are, or to look at actual state practice. Now, here's actually what the world was like in 1973, and the dissenters in Roe don't want to talk about this. They want to act as if the majority was just focused on 1868, which it wasn't. At the time of Roe versus Wade, either 49 or 50 states prohibited abortion in all sorts of ways that were inconsistent with Roe's ruling. In other words, Roe versus Wade, per Harry Blackman, and my brother clerked for Harry Blackman, not that year, but we loved Harry Blackman. He's a good man. But Roe versus Wade was easy the other way. Roe versus Wade was pretty clearly wrong on accounting analysis because Griswold invalidated one outlier statute, um, and Roe invalidated the laws of either 49 or 50 of the states. The only state that arguably was Roe-compliant in 1973 was New York. Roe came up with elaborate rules about trimesters and all sorts of things that no state actually uh, was, um, ha- ha- had met in its actual laws and practices, except maybe New York. Let's look at even today. I'm pro-choice, but the reality is there's not an overwhelming consensus among the states <clears throat> in favor of um, that um, a point of view. We have almost half the states. <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you know, we we have almost half the states, um, and 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 states where lots of people live, uh, uh, Florida, Texas, um, and, and others, um, restricting abortion in ways that are inconsistent with this sweeping um, um, uh, ruling in Roe versus Wade, and that's why Roe got tossed overboard because you can't find it in the text. It says due process. You can't find it in um, uh, um, the consensus of actual practice, which is the best way of cashing out the idea of unenumerated rights. Now, there's maybe another way of thinking about the, the ab- abortion right that Roe didn't talk about at all, um, but unfor- and I've been arguing people should be talking about it, but unfortunately the dissenters didn't quite talk about that. That's women's equality. So I, I'd love to talk about that if you're interested, but Roe versus Wade doesn't say a damn thing about women's equality. It, it frustrates me, but it doesn't. It actually um, talks much more about, uh, and, and no men were on the court at the time, about doctors' rights to perform abortions, kind of like free markets, almost like back to Lochner. The doctor is almost invariably referred to as he or him. So Roe is not a great opinion, truth be told, in sort of a a method and reasoning. And it was ripe for repudiation, if you're an originalist, because it didn't even quote ever the language of the Constitution that it purported to rely on. And when you read that language, the Due Process Clause, um, it actually says process, um, uh, procedure. And you can talk about liberty, but it's no more a liberty clause than a property clause. Um, and liberty doesn't quite actually do the job, nor does privacy, because there's the fetus involved. Now, women's equality is a different argument. Mm-hmm. I wish Roe had made it. It didn't. I wish the dissenters in Dobbs had made it in a more full-throated way. Um, uh, they didn't either, alas. 
so you've touched on a handful of the questions that I wanted to get to and 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 really nicely. I I want to come back to women's equality in a moment, but I think it is it fair to characterize Roe as maybe arriving at a good outcome by the wrong means. Is that it, like it was a bad it was a bad it was a bad argument uh, for well, if by good you mean an outcome that I personally sure. you know prefer as a matter of of political judgment. Yes. Um, now, whether it's the constitutionally correct outcome, oh, that's a little tricky mm. because um, I think equality is the best argument for um, a robust uh, reproductive right. Whether it in the end wins the day, that's actually a little bit more complicated. But um, here I want our audience to understand that I, I'm a liberal, um, but I'm ultimately a scholar. Um, and my commitment as a scholar is to tell you what I think the Constitution best read really does say and doesn't say, and it doesn't always align with my personal political views. So since I mentioned guns just very briefly earlier, I'll just give you two examples of two really prominent cases in this earthquake. I personally am not a, a gun guy. I've never owned a gun. Truthfully, they scare me. And yet I believe, I've never... Um, that my fellow Americans have um, a right to have a gun in their home for self-protection, even though I don't have one in mine, okay? And that's because of my reading of not just the founding evidence, but reconstruction evidence and counting state practices. It's in a bunch of state constitutions, and I have a method, and guns in homes, actually, you're entitled to that, even if it weren't in the Second Amendment, because the 14th Amendment was about that. It was one of the privileges and immunities of Americans in 1866, uh, Reconstruction Republicans thought blacks needed guns in their homes for self-protection because they couldn't count on the local sheriffs. And today, if you look at state constitutions, for better or worse, but state constitution after state constitution after state constitution protects guns far more than, you see, half, half the country protects abortion and half the country doesn't in the state. But almost all the states actually protect gun rights, in fact, overwhelmingly. And the New York law that was invalidated was an outlier statute. Only six states had laws um, that tried to restrict even public carrying of, of guns to the extent that, in, in the way that New York did. And 43 were on the other side, um, 43 slash 44, um, and only six. So, so that was an outlier analysis. But I'm telling you, I don't love guns personally, but I think there's a constitutional right to have a gun. Um, Contrary-wise, I'm personally pro-choice but I just I, I began to tell you I'm not sure that the Constitution uh, quite um, uh, lines uh, best read play, played if you be playing by fair rules um, with um, um, my own preferences on the matter. Okay, um, let's so equality yeah. is what you were asking me about. Yeah, equality. I think we should probably clarify though that that certainly does not stop Congress or the states from codifying into their own into law in their own way, a right to an abortion, right? We're just talking about what the Constitution says. Absolutely. It's very important to understand that the court in no way said that abortion must be prohibited, only that it could be, but a state can choose to protect it. And many states have California, um, uh, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, and so on. And in fact, even before um, uh, the Dobbs decision, 80% of American abortions were basically taking place in jurisdictions that, you know, wouldn't dream of cutting uh, back um, after, um, even after Dobbs, which is why um, in my writings, I emphasize just how important the right of travel would be 
Um, even if your state restricts abortion, if you can travel and get a legal abortion in another state, it's very important. And you say, well, only if you're well off. And I say, okay. Um, but employers can actually protect, help um, uh, defray the expenses, and many employers are beginning to do that. Um, you know, they, they're immediately leaping to action. You can say, okay, well, what if you don't have a job with um, Apple or Amazon or what have you? And I said, oh, states actually in, uh, can become <coughs> havens um, for women who, who, who desperately need medical services, uh, states like New York and California, and they're starting to, to jump in. Oh, and you can say, well, um, but, but maybe some taxpayers aren't going to want to pay for that. And I say, ah, private charities can do that as well, GoFundMes. Um, so um, that's all available. Um, states are allowed to not only protect abortion, but protect abortion even more broadly than they, they have thus far. Nothing in Dobbs says otherwise. And... Ryan, you also nailed it. Congress can pass statutes to this effect um, at a minimum, at a minimum, saying, um, reaffirming this right of travel um, idea and making emphatic that uh, you should be able to um, cross a state line. Um, there could be funding and, and other things in this federal law. I, before Dobbs came down, um, uh, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal in which I talked about how important the right of travel um, might be. I said the real threat to abortion rights isn't Dobbs, but if states you see can do this one by one and Dobbs says they can, well, Congress in 2025 could pass a national ban on abortion. It wouldn't have to, but it could if the Republicans capture the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And I said that's what people should really be worried about, pro-choice folks. And I highlighted that um, in the Wall Street Journal piece. Um, one final thing on the right to travel, only one justice talked about it. It wasn't strictly speaking presented by the narrow facts of the Mississippi law at issue, but one justice went out of his way to say there is a right to travel, even though Mississippi can prohibit abortion. Um, it can't, in effect, pull a Missouri and try to fence in its women and prevent them from, from going to New York or Nevada or Illinois or California, or what have you. That was Justice Kavanaugh in a separate opinion in which he emphasized that the Constitution creates a right to travel. And you can say, well, where's that in the Constitution? That might be an unenumerated right. It's implicit in the structure of the document. And, and um, uh, so, so um, the, there are unenumerated, unenumerated rights in the Constitution. There's a method to find them. Um, uh, contraception, yes. Right to travel, yes. Um, guns, actually, yes. Um, abortion, not so much. I have one more uh, point I just want to touch on for the majority opinion, which is that much of the immediate backlash, as, you, as you've mentioned, I think, centered around the importance of stare decisis, right? the legal principle that questions should be decided on precedent, um, and, and the idea that the court has just thrown out that idea altogether. Can you explain what Alito is actually saying about precedent versus what the Constitution says here? Because, And maybe help our listeners understand why you don't really want to live in a world where precedent is the top uh, at the top of the pyramid in terms of principles that you might uh, uh, apply to. Thank you. You put it just right. A pyramid is actually a very useful metaphor. Um, and then let's talk a little bit more about equality. Um, so ordinary folks think, oh, you follow precedent. Um, here's the problem with that. First, you take an oath of office to the Constitution. That's the supreme law of the land, not to the precedent. That's point one. Point two, 
when you actually look at the Constitution, it says about as clearly as the English language is capable of saying that it, and not Supreme Court precedent, is the supreme law of the land. No ifs, ands, or buts. Third, and kind of related, if the Supremacy Clause means that judges have to disregard statutes, even congressional statutes, if they're inconsistent with the Constitution, and that's what it does mean, um, and that we call that judicial review, Marbury versus Madison, if a congressional statute's inconsistent with the Constitution, so much the worse for the statute, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Well, that's true of a Supreme Court precedent, too. If it's inconsistent with the Constitution, you have to toss it overboard and go with the supreme law of the land. So I've just made originalist arguments of a certain sort. The text of the Constitution, its, its overall structure, its history, privilege it. And you might say, well, that's a little bit circular, Professor. The text says, look at the text. But, but what about precedent? Ah, well, I actually just told you earlier, um, and it's easy to miss, precedent itself says that when the text and the precedent basically fundamentally conflict, you go with the text because the text is at the, at the top of the pyramid. Or if you want to look at it a different way, the base of the pyramid. But it, in any way, it, it's, it's what prevails. And there are precedents on precedents, so, so to speak. Let me give you three examples. 1937, the precedents for 50 years privileged sort of fat cat employers in cases like Lochner, who were um, 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 sweatshop employers and all the rest. Um, and, and in the name of um, uh, principles that they read into the Constitution, a whole bunch of conservative judges basically overprotected property and contract rights. Hugo Black and the others come along in the mid-1930s. This is Franklin Roosevelt's originalist liberal revolution say, no, actually, the Constitution doesn't say that. So Lochner gets tossed overboard, and, and liberals celebrate that. That's because, because the correct reading of the Constitution has prevailed over the corrupt, egregiously erroneous precedents. Okay? And that actually restricted a right, a right people might not like, you know, a, a right, a right of, of the one percenters or something to, to drive hard bargains with their employees. Um, but um, uh, um, that was the text trumping the precedent. And that's a precedent on precedent, 1937. I gave you another one, Brown v. Board of Education. The precedent is plessy, and it's been in place for 50 years. The precedent is Jim Crow, and courts are saying Jim Crow is just fine by us. But the text, damn it, it says equal. And apartheid isn't equal. And if you're an originalist, if you're a textualist, if you're Hugo Black, you say, damn it, it says equal, and that has to trump over the egregiously erroneous Precedent of Plessy. Okay, now I said 1963. That's the third precedent on precedent. Um, they, um, before 1963, there were very narrow understandings of all sorts of rights, and the Warren Court reads them much more broadly. M M Miranda, Gideon versus Wainwright, Reynolds versus Sims, one person, one vote. So the court is actually um, uh, going way beyond um, and, and actually overruling. Um, earlier precedents in the name of the best reading of the Constitution. One very famous law professor actually writes, the list of cases the Warren Court is, over, is, is eviscerating looks like the title, looks like the table of contents of a standard constitutional law casebook. Um, so, so I've just given you three arguments. I'll give you a fourth. One, 
text of the Constitution itself says you privilege the text of the Constitution. Two, judges took an oath to that text. Three, the precedents themselves, 1937, 1954, 1963. These are precedents on precedents, and all three times the, the basic idea is an incorrect precedent yields to a be- the correct reading of the text. Now, you have to have the correct reading of the text, but that, um, that's what we talked about before. Here's a fourth reason it's a mistake to emphasize precedent. Because the dissenters spent way too much time talking about liberty, because liberty can be restricted by due process, and way too much time talking about precedent, 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 and not enough time explaining why, actually, there is a right to abortion in the Constitution, rightly read. And in my view, they should have made arguments based on equality, and they didn't quite, because the precedents actually don't talk so much, especially Roe, about equality. There's one line in Casey that mentions equality, but damn it, uh, um, a Planned Parenthood versus Casey from 1992 doesn't even do a great job making a full-throated equality argument. And the dissenters themselves actually mention the phrase equal protection, I think, only once and in passing in their entire dissent. Unfortunately, um, they're not emphasizing equal protection. It's a more complicated argument, and we'll get to it. But what they do say is precedent, precedent, precedent. Here's the problem with that. That argument has, a sh- a sh- uh, I put it in Time magazine, a shelf life shorter than a head of lettuce. Because if your argument is only based on precedent, the minute the case comes down and you lose, now the precedent is against you. And you know, and you have to fold your tent and go home because actually if you're a precedent, precedent, precedent person, you just lost. Now, if you're Hugo freaking black, you know, and you're if you're if you're an originalist, you can emphasize um, the text and original intent. You know, today, tomorrow, forever, you're Martin freaking Luther, and you're standing on the rock of constitutional text and history. And and almost all of Hugo Black's great um, um, majority opinions um, in the Warren Court began as dissents. He's laying out, actually, an agenda, saying, it really does say right to vote. It really does say free speech. It really does say religious equality. We should protect these things. Um, and he's originally in dissent, but because he's actually, he's a liberal fundamentalist of a certain sort, he ends up prevailing. And my claim is liberals today need to learn from the example of Hugo Black. We need to be able to make originalist arguments. And sometimes they'll be on our side. Let me, for example, give you the kind of originalist arguments that you could make on behalf of a reproductive, uh, robust reproductive right for, for women. I'll I'll also tell you why I think it's not a knockdown argument. Okay, so you say, okay, well, it's not substantive due process because process means process. It's privacy. And say, oh, okay, privacy isn't in the Constitution, but you could maybe derive it from some of the provisions. The Fourth Amendment talks about the right of people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. And houses are, they're not talking about um, factories. They're not talking about shopping malls. Um, um, they're talking about a, a private abode. And the Third Amendment actually talks about um, no courting of troops in houses. It's about a private domain and, and, you, and privacy. And I say, yeah, that gets you Griswold, which is about married couples in their homes. But it may not get you Roe, which involves um, a transaction that, may, that, that typically occurs outside your home, 
money is changing hands with someone who you've never met before, a healthcare provider you may never meet again. It's more like Lochner in that way. Um, oh, and it's involving um, an entity, a life in being, in a way, um, uh, the, the fetus. Um, let's imagine the fetus is 33 weeks or something. Well, that's not nothing, you see. Um, and, and so privacy isn't the... That was a good way of talking about the Griswold right, the contraception right, um, 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 uh, maybe sodomy and other things that aren't that don't create harm to any other person. That's not the best way. Okay, so don't talk about liberty quite because liberty can be abridged with due process, and don't talk about privacy. That's maybe not the best way of talking about it. Even though these are the ways that Griswold talked about. It. Why, I mean, that Roe talked about it. Why did Roe talk about it that way? Because Roe was building on Griswold. Roe was trying to look at um, um, the previous precedents, even though contraception and abortion are totally different, you know, because, con- and, and Blackman admits this in Roe, because he says, uh, contraception, this is his language, it, I'm a quote, inherently different, because it doesn't involve a fetus. Women's equality is a different kind of argument. Let's imagine, okay, let, let's imagine that we actually treat um, a fetus like a born human being, okay? But Sometimes we privilege even liberty over life. I'll give you an example. Um, the child is born. The child um, needs um, a kidney. The only kidney that matches is the father's kidney. We don't require the father to give up the kidney. Um, we don't require the father to give up um, um, even a drop of blood. which is re- And the father has two kidneys. He doesn't need both. Um, um, the, the, kid, the kid is born. Uh, talk about life, okay, sacred. Um, the kid needs um, a blood transfusion. Only the father's blood will do. It's replenishable. We actually don't require him to do that. So a women's equality argument says, why do we conscript women's u- uteruses, their wombs, um, but not men's kidneys or blood? Um, men can have sex without fear of bodily con- future bodily consequence, but sort of women can't. Um, and, and so... Um, these are laws, uh, these abortion laws, that really disc- are kind of discriminating against um, women in, in various ways. So, um, they're, they're laws that literally are um, um, uh, um, engage, uh, 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 obliging women to uh, perform, pun intended, forced labor um, thir- in violation of 13th Amendment values. Um, slaves, at, at the time of the 14, uh, 13th Amendment, um, right after the Civil War, they weren't just um, men. Half of them were female. And female slaves were forced to be breeders against their will, um, uh, to bear children against their will so that the master could have you know, more um, human property to enslave in the next generation. So um, there are liberals who say, oh, um, Think about 13th Amendment values. Think about 14th Amendment equality values. Forget privacy for a moment. Forget um, um, a substantive due process. Forget liberty. Now, it's tricky, um, and here's why it is tricky, because some of those arguments arguably prove too much. Um, would they permit abortion at um, week 33 or week 34? Um, um, uh, you know, uh, and if not, how, how does equality draw a line between late-term abortions and early-term abortions? In cases of rape, okay, um, the woman um, didn't voluntarily do anything, but in cases of voluntary sex and um, without birth control or something, maybe it's a little different than um, 
um, uh, involuntary servitude of, of, uh, because they were voluntary actions in, engaged in. Um, if it, you're making a 13th Amendment argument, slaves didn't vote, but women actually are voting, um, and so they're not quite slaves, and there are lots of pro-choice women, but there are also lots of pro-life women. So, so it's complicated in all these ways, but at least now we're having an originalist debate about the deep values of the Reconstruction Amendments. And here's why it's hard. Because both sides, I believe, see themselves as, in effect, the party of Lincoln. Here's what each side says. We liberals, I'm a liberal, say, this is about, um, this is about the emancipation of women um, and, and, and uh, uh, the, the reproductive right. And if women actually can't control their reproduction, they, they really aren't f- you know, full and equal um, citizens, and this is about the liberation of women, and that's what we believe passionately. Um, and, and that's why, as a personal matter, I'm pro-choice. Um, I, I, I think there are lots of medical complexities. Um, there are ectopic pregnancies. There, there, there are situations where the woman wanted the, the child, but it's not going to be viable, and in fact, unless she can get a procedure, she, she may be at risk. You may not be able to bear children in the future. It's complicated, and the government is crude. I trust women. That's why I'm personally pro-choice. But here's what the folks on the other side say. They say, oh, you want to talk about, you know, who's the most vulnerable among us? Who's most like a slave? That would be the fetus, because they don't even get to vote. They're, they're the most vulnerable among us. Substantive due process, which is what Roe was based on, doesn't just travel through Lochner. It travels through Dred Scott. Dred Scott says blacks can't be citizens, and Roe says feti aren't persons. And Dred Scott takes a moral issue where states disagree and nationalizes it in an immoral direction, and so does Roe versus Wade. And Dred Scott makes the Republican Party platform, which prohibits slavery in the territories, unconstitutional. And Roe versus Wade makes the Republican Party platform today unconstitutional. And you shouldn't do that unless the Constitution clearly says something. So both sides see themselves as the children of Lincoln. One side says women's emancipation, women's liberty and equality, and the other side says the most vulnerable among us, the, the, um, the, the, the humans that are most like slaves today are the innocent unborn, and they don't even vote. And that's why it's such a hard issue, truthfully. And I'm being honest, my own personal resolution of this and pro-choice may not quite correspond with what's the best original originalist argument, which is complicated, but the best originalist argument is equality and the 13th Amendment, and the liberals didn't make that argument in Dobbs. They just said precedent, 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 liberty, 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 privacy, 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 substantive due process, substantive due process, substantive due process, and I think those were all mistaken choices on their part. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.